would you stand with us as we read from the scriptures today? My name is, oh, is it working? Okay. My name is Timothy, and I'll be reading a passage for this day from Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Then, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But, some might say, our sinfulness serves as a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? Now, this is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But, someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follows them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the whole, that the whole world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. This is the word of God to you today. You can be seated. Well, good morning. That was weak. You guys are tired like me. Good morning. I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's such a privilege to be here with you this morning. I just love what we did um, at the first part of, of the service commissioning. Bob and, and Lisa, you know, it just reminds me of, of what the church is all about, that we are the gathered people of, of God um, and that God is, is here in our midst and he's equipping us and that he's encouraging us um, through one another. Um, so I'm so excited just to see what, what God's got for us um, as we move even deeper into being a caring and a praying church. Um, you know, before we jump into the text today, uh, I, I just, I wanna invite us into a space of praying for the conflict that's happening in Israel right now, this morning. I don't know how that's, that's hit you. I had the opportunity to be in, in Israel in 2017 and, and, and walk some of that ground and some of that land. And um, we know that um, 
you know, that, that place is, is holy and, and sacred um, in the story of God. Um, and, um, and so my heart breaks for all of the violence and the suffering that's happening right now. So let's just, let's just take a moment, and I don't know where you are um, in terms of processing that, but I think like when there's brokenness like that in the world, we need to acknowledge it as, as a body. And, um, and, and God does tell us to bring all things to him in prayer, that he hears our prayers that are lifted up. And um, just to remember that there are um, not just human beings, but there's also brothers and sisters um, on both sides of, of, of that conflict in, both, in all of those areas right now, suffering. So let's go to the Lord in, in prayer together. Father, um, we come to you with heavy hearts this morning as we think about um, war unfolding in Israel and in Gaza right now, Lord. Father, we think of, of the people. We think of the innocent people of men and women and children, Lord, um, who are suffering right now, many who have already lost loved ones in horrific violent acts of evil, many who are afraid for their lives, many who are fleeing their homes right now, Lord, many who are afraid of their homes being destroyed. And so, Lord, we, we sit in that place with people, thinking of them and, and the fear that they must feel right now, Lord. And Lord, we're confronted with the depravity of humanity and of the work of evil. And so, Lord, we pray against the dark and evil forces at work in the spiritual realms and at work through people now, Lord, and we pray that the work of evil would be thwarted. Lord, we pray that you would bring peace. Lord, we pray for wisdom for leaders to seek you. Lord, and we pray that innocent lives would be spared. Lord, we thank you that you hear our cries. Would you be near to people in suffering right now? And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's, I uh, was thinking about saying that prayer and, and how we would transition to the message this morning, but, but really it's quite a natural transition because we're in the book of Romans and, and what we're looking at in these first three chapters is, is really like, why do we need good news? And we keep saying, you know, there's, there's good news, but there, there's only good news because there's bad news. And the bad news is that people are depraved and fallen and fall short of the glory of, of God. And we've been looking at that, especially in the last few weeks. What does that mean? In what ways are human beings running away from God? And so we began in chapter 1 and Paul showed us that all people are by nature rebellious and running away from God. And, and he painted a very ugly picture of what that looks like, literally hell on earth. And it's a world defined by chaos and by brokenness. And, and I think that when we see warfare, open warfare anywhere in the world where human beings are killing other human beings in an organized fashion, it's the height of human 
uh, evil and depravity in many ways. And so this is very real to us, this idea that the world is chaotic and broken. It's no longer an abstraction if we'll just sit in it for a minute. Um, It's real, and it's what's happening in the world all around us, in the big world, but then in our small world too. And so then in chapter 2, we looked at different ways in which people run away from God. And we said, you know, there's the obvious way that Paul outlines, and it's the way of the pagans, of the Gentiles, the way that they ignore God and and, and run away from him, uh, following the ways of of the world, doing whatever um, their hearts are inclined to do. But you remember that Paul talked specifically to the Jews, to the religious people, and said, you know, in your minds, you're looking at the pagan people running from God in in their way, and you're saying, at least we're not like them. At least we have God's word. We're his people. At least we have the history and the stories and the temple and the pedigree. But, But Paul showed us, if you remember, that there's actually two ways of running away from God. There's the way of running away from God in open rebellion, doing ever, whatever you want to do, ignoring God's ways and, do, and, and do, trusting in your own goodness and your own passions. But then there's this other way. There's the religious road. And if you remember, uh, we likened it to the story of the prodigal son, um, that Jesus tells the story of, uh, of a younger brother who runs away and um, does whatever he wants to do, and he runs from God in the way of the world. But there was an older brother who stayed at home, and, and he more quietly, more secretly also ran away from God. It, it was more of a closed rebellion. It was a rebellion of religiosity, and it was a way of self-righteousness, of saying, if I, if I just follow all the rules, then God owes me something, and I'll be accepted and at least I'm not as bad as those other people running the other way. But you see, Paul is prying from our hands both self-centeredness and self-righteousness, and, and that both of those postures lead us away from God. And I don't, I don't know where you are, that we're all running away from God in our own way, and we're either doing it um, like the Gentiles with a posture of closed fists that we're fighting God or we're just ignoring God with arms crossed. And I just wonder today, as you listen to this text, as we think about the ways in which we run away from God, what is your posture toward God? In what ways are you inclined to run away from him? Is it arms crossed, ignoring God like the Gentiles or is it fighting with fists closed like the Jews? And we're going to look at ways in which um, we continue to do these things. And then we'll end by looking at a third way, a a third posture, a a way of receiving from God what he offers to us. Now, in this first part in chapter 3, Paul's talking to the religious people again. And and he stages like this mock argument. And, And so imagine as we're reading through these first verses that uh, he's talking to a very religious person uh, carrying a very big uh, Hebrew Bible and very proud that they have this text, very proud um, of their Jewishness. And and so we see at the beginning of chapter 3 that um, in this pretend argument, 
a person saying, are you saying that the fact that we have the word of God is worthless? Are you saying that all the history of our faith, the traditions, the stories that we've passed down through the, all these years are worthless? And if that seems like a faraway concept to you, you know, we might translate this objection um, in our world something like this. Hey, Gabe, are you saying that coming to church and, and praying with my kids and sending my kids to Christian school and giving away lots of money are worthless when it comes to pleasing God? And so we get to Paul's big question, does religion have any value? Does religion have any value? And you might think that's a funny thing for a pastor in a church to be questioning. I mean, isn't Christianity a religion? Isn't what we're doing now religion? Well, we're gonna look at that. What does that mean? And so he begins this pretend argument in verse one, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. And so first of all, he reminds, Paul says, look, God gave his law and every story of the Jewish people, their history, to keep people pointing them back to the one true story that he is the king. You see, all the laws, all the stories, all the rituals, the temple, the land, all of it was meant to tell the world a story, the one true story of the world, that there is no hope in the world apart from God's undeserved grace. And so Paul reminds the religious person, the Jewish person, that... Um, God has been at work through the centuries that he gave them a unique place in the history of salvation. But he continues, Paul imagines the religious person saying, but if the law was supposed to lead us to Jesus, didn't God fail since most of the Jews still don't believe the good news that Jesus is king? And to that, Paul replies in verse four, no way, for God is faithful to do what he said he will do even when people are not. But... In the pretend argument, they continue to argue, if Israel's unfaithfulness helped people realize they need Jesus, didn't they do their part in the story? How could God be upset with them? And so Paul quickly answers that. In verse five, he says, basically, that's a ridiculous argument. God will judge each person for the rebellion against him. And so then he ends this first section of this argument with the religious person. Should we religious people conclude that we are better than the rest of the sinners in the world, and this is the punch. This is the whole point of this first part of the text. Paul says, no way, in verse nine, all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under the power of sin. And if you didn't catch any of that, and I just wanted to lay that out for you so you can understand what he's doing in the rhetoric of this first part of chapter three, but if you didn't catch any of it, catch verse nine, that what he's saying is, all people are under the power of sin. And like we say at New City, all means all. All people under the power of sin. And I don't know if you've sat with that before. That means we as human beings are under the power of sin without Christ. The world is under the power of sin without God in the world. And so what he's gonna do and what we're gonna go through in this next uh, part of the text is we're gonna look at um, the effects of sin, both individually and corporately in the world. Like what happens 
because we are under the power of sin, what are the effects of that? And, and remember, the point of all this is that we would see how bad it is when we ignore God. That we would see how utterly destitute we are individually and together and as an entire community and as an entire nation and, and the world at large when we ignore God and when the power of sin is unleashed on us, what does that look like? And, you know, we started off saying that, you know, a physical war, like the war that's unfolding in the Middle East right now, is sort of the, the height of human depravity and rebelliousness. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than people killing people on purpose in an organized way. But here's the reality is that um, we're, we, we're all experiencing the violence of sin in our own lives in different ways. There's a great song by, uh, he's really a poet songwriter named David Wilcox, and he sings a song called Covert Wars. And he tells the story about um, this family and what it was like in this family where, you know, the family was on the surface together, but behind the scenes, things were really falling apart. And there's this one line that has always stuck with me. He says, we were taught well not to kick under the table but to kick under our breath instead. It's a covert war. You see, we're all experiencing the violence and the effects of sin. Maybe not in a physical war with people killing each other, but in our own ways, we're experiencing that in our lives. And so as you listen to this, I, I wanna invite you to make it very personal for you because I think this entire part of of Paul's letter is meant to lead us to a place of confession and repentance. That we've all fallen short, that we all in our own ways are, are tempted to ignore God and to allow the power of sin to rule over us. And, and that happens in some different ways. And so we're gonna explore what some of those ways looks like. Um, he starts, and, and basically, uh, this next string of texts that we're gonna go through, it's a string of passages that he puts together from the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Um, most of them are from the Psalms, a few are from Isaiah. And the point is the people that Paul was originally writing to would have known these texts by heart. And, and, and what he's really saying to them is that, look at this text that you love so much that you find your identity in and that you know, all along through the history of the world, um, this is what these t scriptures have been saying all along. So he starts in verse 10. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is righteous, not even one. And I think if we said that on CNN or on the news, like we would get a lot of flack for that, right? Because that's a pretty bold statement. There's no good people in the world. There's no one living right in the world. You're like, wait a second, how could that be? Aren't there people doing good things? But remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, that one day God's gonna hit play on a tape recorder that's hanging around your neck for your whole life. Remember we said we're all carrying a, a, a metaphorical tape recorder or digital recorder around our neck that's recording all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions, and, and one day at judgment, God's going to hit play on that, and he's not going to have to say a thing for us to be condemned. We're going to condemn ourselves. 
You see, all of our secret lives will be exposed, every thought, every word, every action, everything done, everything left undone, and it'll be played publicly before the king. And so what he's saying is that the effects of sin, that no one is righteous, not even one, and no one by their own merit, by their own goodness, will be declared to have right relationship or right legal standing before God. And that's a very frightening thought. First power of sin, no one in right relationship with God. Well, what happens as a result of that? Therefore, verse 11, no one is truly wise. No one is truly wise. That without God, when we're under the power of sin, no one is truly wise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to apply truth in life in specific circumstances, but because of our disconnection from God, we are corrupted in our very nature, physically, spiritually, and mentally, and we cannot understand the truth on our own. We cannot live wisely, but we continually make decisions that lead us to ruin. And that happens individually in our lives, and that happens corporately in our lives when we're under the power of sin that no one is truly wise. What happens next? No one's righteous, no one's wise. Third, no one is seeking God. And this goes back to our image of the two roads that we're all in some way running away from God in our lives. Either as the elder brother or the younger brother, either in our open rebellion or in our quiet religious rebellion, either way, we're running away from God. You see, no one on their own seeks after God. And some of you might, if you really hear what I'm saying, you might object to that. And you say, well, now wait a second. Aren't all kinds of people seeking God in their own way? I mean, aren't people from different religions seeking spirituality? Aren't they curious? Aren't they seeking supernatural things? And the truth is people are drawn to spiritual things. Spirituality is just the realm of purpose. That's what it means. People are drawn to find their their purpose. But you see, people are either seeking the blessings and the power of God, but no one is seeking to know the one true God as he is. And Jesus himself says this in John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And this is a really important part of of theological understanding, guys, is that human beings, right, we are dead. We are dead in our sin. That's what the scriptures teach us. And, And a dead person, last time I checked, cannot make themselves come alive. It requires some power, something from the outside to come in to cause a dead person to be raised to new life. And so in the same way, people under the power of sin cannot seek God on their own. God has to do something first. God has to be the initiator of the relationship. What does that mean for us? Well, one thing it means is is that um, when we're around people Um, who don't yet believe in God, one of the most important things that we need to do, and this is why Bob and Lisa coming up here is such a big deal, why the, the work of Nick is such a big deal, 
is that our first ministry must always be a ministry of prayer. Because we can feel burdens for people around us. We can, we can want for our friends and our family and our neighbors to, to know the one true God. And, and we can, and we should invite them to church and talk to them about our relationship with Jesus. But here's the deal. Unless the living God does something to initiate a change in that person's heart, they cannot understand the truth of God. And so our first work as Christians when we're dealing with people who are far from God is prayer. Is that we have to go to God and, and we pray for people and we pray that God would do that on their behalf. And the scriptures teach us that God hears our prayers and he answers those prayers. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No one seeks after God. And this is the world that we, that we live in. But this also means that if you're here this morning and you're seeking God and you're saying, I'm not, I wouldn't yet say I'm a Christian, but, but I'm seeking him and I'm here and I'm pursuing God in some way. Here's, here's what I want to encourage you with. What does that mean? That means God's already been seeking you. God's already been seeking you. You see, God is the God who runs after us while we're running away from him. Verse 12, under the power of sin, all have turned away, all have become useless. More language for running away from God. You see, our purpose is to be found in our relationship with God. Our doing was meant to flow from our being. You remember one of the first things that happens after the sin at the beginning of the story in Genesis when the people first rebel against God is they, they see their nakedness, they hide, but then they're cast out of God's presence, out of this perfect paradise in this garden and it says that their work became toil. And you notice they had work when they were in the garden, when things were perfect, when they were in right relationship with God, they had work that was meaningful and fulfilling and they had a purpose in the world and they didn't have to strive for that and they, it wasn't toil. But when they were separated from God, they not lost not just their relationship with him, but they also lost their purpose. And so it's no wonder that in our world, people are struggling for meaning and purpose and why work is so often such a difficult aspect of our lives. All have turned away, all have become useless. You see, when we live without regard for God in the world, we cannot find purpose even in our work. No one does good, not a single one. And that might seem extreme to you. Wait a second, no one, you might say. I mean, I have neighbors that aren't Christians, but, but they seem to do good things. I mean, people give away money to the homeless and they serve the poor. And I know they don't love Jesus, but they do these good things. Aren't they doing good things? And the answer is yes and no. You see, it's yes by the world standard. It's, it's good, goodness is relative, first of all. But, but the first thing we have to look at is that when we are in utter rebellion against God, rejecting him and his authority in our lives, then anything that we do is colored by that. 
It would be like someone, a, a, a man, um, checking into a hotel room to start an adulterous affair and then giving a big tip to the bellhop on the way up to the room. And, and you would say, like, it wasn't that a good thing that he was generous to, to the bellhop? And you say, well, I mean, kind of, but he's going to basically destroy his family. And so it is with us when people are running away from God and rejecting God's authority, everything that we would call good is now marred and colored by that. But also, according to the Bible, a deed is only good if it's good in both form and motive. In other words, a good thing has to be done for a completely pure reason. And we, if we examine our motivations for a lot of the things that we do, there's always mixed motivations in there, always. Even if it's just a little bit of, I just want to be seen to be a good person. I need to be seen. You see, when we've turned away from God and we're running away from him, there's no such thing as a good work. There's no such thing as a good person. Verse 13, he continues, their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And I think this is the easiest place to recognize our brokenness. What he's talking about is our words. And I just want you to think about the words that you said just yesterday. Just yesterday. I, I, I did this exercise already, and it, and it wasn't a good outcome. Because it's a mixed bag. I mean, I said some good things. I, I, I blessed people in some ways. I criticized people in some other ways, though. In my own way, I was impatient and unkind, even with the people that I love the most. And, and I don't know what that looks like for you, but remember um, what James said is that the tongue is like a rudder of a ship. It's like a spark that lights a big forest fire. It's our tongues, our words are powerful and they're dangerous. And the point is that even if we're like, hey, I basically think I do a bunch of good stuff, the reality is that we all fall short of God's perfect standard because our words all smell. They have a little bit of a scent of death in them all the time. Well, he, he kind of ends with um, the harshest words in verses 15 through 17. When we're living under the power of sin, when we're living without regard for God in the world, it says... They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. And, and you might listen to that and you say, well, wait a second. Stop right there, Gabe. I, I, you were, I had you. I was with you when you're talking about words because I definitely, like, said some things I wish I could take back. You know, I definitely thought some things, but I've never murdered anybody. But do you remember, do you remember what Jesus said he says, when you are carelessly angry at another person, it's the same thing as committing murder in your heart. You see, we do it all the time. We dehumanize each other all the time. In our words, in our action, in our ignoring one another. You see, it's a condition of the heart that he's talking about. And destruction and misery always follow 
They don't know where to find peace. And as we sit in, in, in this part of the text talking about people killing people, and we're killing people with words, but, you know, we just talked about on our planet right now, there's people killing people for real. And if, and if we put words to what's happening in that situation, I think the words destruction and misery would be appropriate. And if we said, you know, we all feel a little bit lost, like we don't know where to find peace. And isn't that just the case? I mean, how do you fix this level of brokenness? And, and, and we see it in the Middle East and we say, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's so complicated. But we see it in our covert wars and our kitchen tables too, don't we? That our lives and our marriages and our relationships with our coworkers and our kids and our parents, like somewhere in your relational world, there's brokenness that you don't know where to find peace. And it's complex. And there's probably misery there somewhere for you. You see, the result of living without regard for God in the world is total relational brokenness. The, re- the reality is we can't find peace. We're miserable and our lives are, are chaos. And all of this gets summed up, though, in verse 18. They have no fear of God at all. And, and we're going we're gonna to kind of end here. Um, but fear of God is a very important concept in the scriptures for us to understand as Christians. Because some of you might think, well, wait, like we're supposed to be afraid of God. That doesn't, I thought God was loving and kind, like he was a father that embraced us and loves us. But what, what fear of God is talking about is, is a holy reverence. It's living with appropriate regard for who God is. Is that when we see him, it's the, it's the opposite of living without regard for God. Is that when we see God in all his majesty, in all his glory, in all his goodness, in all his love, we will fall down and worship at his feet. But you see, when we live like he doesn't exist, we live without proper reverence him, for him, we live without fear of him. And here's the thing, when we live without fear of God, we live in fear of everything else. You know, I don't know where you are um, with what we've talked about this morning. I don't know what particular ways that you find yourself running from God. But I want to remind us that there's not just two roads. There, there, There is the road that we run away from God as a religious people trying to figure it out by following the rules. And there's the road of running away from God, following the way of the world, doing whatever we want. One is we approach God with arms crossed, we ignore him, we're indifferent to him. Another way is we have our fist up, we're ready to fight. But there's a third way, and the third way we actually began in Romans 1.16. Paul reminded us that in the gospel, in the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed. And so what we see is that because of the finished work of Jesus, We don't have to live under the power of sin. And all the things that we talked about do not have to be the reality for us. But that in Christ, we can come to him as a free people. And we can come to him not with a posture of fighting and not with a posture of arms closed, but with a posture of arms open, ready to receive from him. His kingship, his lordship, 
and that we would rightly regard him in the world. And the truth is, guys, that's the answer to all the human brokenness. It's the answer to the brokenness that we're seeing on the television, and it's the answer to the brokenness that's happening around our tables. Let's pray together as a way of closing. Lord, we're just reminded of what you say in the passage we're going to study next week. That you have shown us a way to be made right with you without keeping requirements of the law. And, and that this way was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets so long ago. And that we are made right with you by placing our faith in Jesus. And, and that that's true for everyone who believes no matter who we are, no matter where we come from. And so, Lord, we come to you heavy with the brokenness that we see in the world, the chaos and the destruction and the violence that results because people have lived without regard for you. And we come to you with heaviness in our hearts because we see and we experience the brokenness in our own lives because we've also lived without regard for you in some way. And so, Lord... We confess before you right now that we've forgotten you in our small stories, that we've forgotten to come to you first when we're hurting in our marriages, that we've forgotten to seek your wisdom when it comes to parenting. Lord, we confess that we've tried to find our purpose in our work and in our relationships, and those things have left us broken and so we come and we confess that you are the king. We ask for your help, Lord God. Because we're weak and we can't do it on our own, so we just ask that you would help us. Help us, Jesus. Help us not to run away from you, but to receive you. And Lord, would you draw near to every person in this room who's crying out to you right now? Every person who right now is aware of brokenness in their lives, aware of the ways in which they've ignored you, and right now is just saying, God, I'm ready to come home. I'm tired. I'm tired of doing it under my own strength, and I need you, Jesus. Lord, would you draw near to each one praying that prayer right now? And Lord, would you rush into our lives with new life, with wisdom, and with love, and with radiant beauty that we might live and serve you this day and this week. And we pray these things in the matchless name of our King, Jesus, amen.